Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. This year, for the first time ever, I went to the International Film Festival Rotterdam, or IFFR, which took place from 25th January to 4th February in the Netherlands. Over the years, the festival has accumulated a reputation for showcasing independent and experimental works by both established and emerging auteurs. And this year was no exception. To discuss some of the highlights from this year's lineup that you should look out for in the screenings and festivals to come, I invited the critics Jordan Cronk and Beatrice Loeza to today's podcast. We talked about some of the standout features from this year's IFFR, including The Ballad of Suzanne Césaire, Dream Team, Under a Blue Sun, as well as some great shorts including To Exist Under Permanent Suspicion by Valentin Noajem and Few Can See by Frank Sweeney. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Devika. Thanks for uh, inviting me back. And who are you other than being a Rotterdam veteran for Film Comment? I'm a critic and a programmer, and uh, yeah, I cover Rotterdam for Film Comment uh, for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, I think. And yeah, freelance film critic. And we have a sort of veteran in the making, Beatrice. (laughs) Sort of, yeah. I'm glad to be back. Um, IFFR was actually my first international, well, no, technically TIFF, but that's Canada. My first overseas festival. um, I think I came here for the first time in 2019. So it was nice to be back. Well, um, I know you both saw a lot more than I did. I was at the festival for this program they have called Critics' Choice, where they have uh, critics every year present a video essay or some other audiovisual project in response to one of the selections of the festival. And I did a little project on La Quimera, which I hope to share on the podcast soon. Uh, But I, I did manage to catch a few films. And I know there's one that all three of us saw that... Uh, I think has been getting a lot of play and uh, a lot of good reviews. And that's The Ballad of Suzanne Césaire by Madeline Hunt Ehrlich. Would one of you like to introduce the film a little bit, Beatrice? Sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, in the title, it's 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 about, and this very broadly speaking, Suzanne Césaire, who's uh, best known as the wife, um, though they separated for most of the time, they were officially together and eventually did divorce. Of, anyways, the wife of Inés Césaire, uh, the you know Martinican poet and politician, and you know this person that spearheaded the Negritude movement. Um, and so uh, the film is sort of well, it's it's not a biopic. It sort of uproots the conventional biopic and the sort of hagiographic approach that these films tend to have, especially of a figure like this who you know. Suzanne Césaire was was also a, a 
writer and, and thinker and, and vastly influential, but, um, you know, history hasn't really remembered her beyond being in Itzizeo's wife. Um, and so the film is like a series of, of stripped down, but very elegantly composed like tableau of, of like scenes from her life and, and her relationships. Um, it's mostly silent. It's very gestural. Um, and, you know, the film also calls attention to the fact that this is sort of a put on performance that the film is in the process of being made. And it's like, a, you know, it just kind of calls attention to the fact that, um, you know, this is an effort to try to capture someone that is still sort of mysterious uh, within, you know, the scope of history and that, um, you know, I guess we don't know that much about. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I was very hypnotized by it. Um, I, I thought it was, was really beautiful and um, just like a really lovely way of subverting these super like schematic biographical portraits that I hate so much. <laughs> Yeah, I was really taken with the film. I mean, just the title caught my attention when I was looking at the program. Uh, a film about Suzanne Césaire just sounded so intriguing because, as you said, Beatrice, um, you know, she was the wife of Amy Césaire, whose sort of star, if you can call it that, is so massive that I think it sort of overshadowed her work, even though they met in college in Paris and they were both, you know, in the thick of it, in the thick of the negritude and surrealist movements and the anti-colonial movements. Um, as the film shares in this like uh, prologue sort of text uh, on screen, you know, they worked on this uh, radical journal together for many years, during which time she published many texts about surrealism um, and, we're talking about surrealism here, like this kind of pan-African, you know, radical anti-colonial sort of variant of it. Um, so surrealism as a means of really protesting like Western ways of knowing the world, uh, you know, Western language, in this case, French. And so um, I think what I really loved about the film is that it really takes that spirit of surrealism that clearly was so central to Suzanne's life, I mean, both Amy and Suzanne's life, uh, in its depiction of whatever fragments of her life. I mean, I wouldn't say this is a film about her life, like that mm. <laughs> um, conveys a sense of comprehensiveness that this film simply doesn't have. It is very short glimpses of her life, um, which, you know, I, I read in the press notes that the director, she did five years of research and interviews, including speaking to Suzanne's family and friends. Um, and so from that, she has crafted sort of a series of scenes that feel very poetic and staged. So I don't know how much they are supposed to reflect any sort of actual, you know, documentary reality. Um, but they, I don't know, there's, there's a way in which the film brings together these three different tracks. So there's the voiceover, which I think is from some of Suzanne's writings, but then also scripted elements mixed in. Uh, there's these, yeah, reenacted stage scenes. And Zita Hanro, um, the French actress, stars as uh, Suzanne Césaire. Um, 
But then those scenes also move in and out of the present and the past. And the present day scenes are actually, you realize, scenes of the crew making this film. So the actors kind of rehearsing or, you know, looking at their materials or someone operating a clapboard. So there's three distinct parts that sort of crisscross um, so that the film is both about Suzanne Césaire and about trying to depict Suzanne Césaire. And I found that, yeah, just so transfixing and so in line with the ideas around surrealism, uh, which is that, you know, the most powerful ways in which we can know something or someone often are outside the bounds of language or rationality or comprehension. Um, you know, like the gaps in understanding, the gaps in language are where some of the most sort of uh, powerful, you know, repositories of like revolutionary possibility are held. Like we have to think beyond what we know to get there. And the film really kind of conveys that formally. And it's also just beautifully shot, right? It's shot on 16 millimeter, I think. And it just, it's alive with the crackle of the film. And um, Suzanne says I wrote a lot about nature. So I think a lot of the film dedicates itself to capturing nature, uh, trees and ponds and leaves, uh, and just capturing kind of their rustle and hum. Uh, and it's a very enveloping film in a way even for something that's so fragmented and not entirely immersive as a narrative it feels very enveloping um jordan yeah i enjoyed the film as well and i mean it seems to be a kind of work that is like a, a comment on how it's like impossible to make a true portrait of a person whether a famous person or anyone um so in that sense i enjoyed it from a narrative and formal aspect just because it seems to be like Beatrice was saying and you were saying just kind of doing something different with the form and not you know it's not a biographical information-based film per se so you for someone like me who didn't know anything about her it was still sort of like it's still sort of shrouded in a kind of mystery which I liked uh but it's almost like a proposal to then now do further I don't know thinking or researching on the subject so um yeah, I did enjoy it. But yeah, it's been kind of like a slippery like object for me as I've had about a week or so to kind of mull it over. Yeah, and I think there's also just like a very strong feminine aspect to the film, which is hard to talk about without resorting to tropes. Um, you know, there's a lot of nature and there's scenes of Zita Handro playing with kids and reflecting on Suzanne Cesaire's uh, role as a mother and how she would have balanced that with the role of a thinker and a revolutionary. But I did feel like there was something, like this was some kind of feminine approach to the biopic, which many, you know, people have written how the biopic with its like kind of totalizing structure and, and faith in recreation can be considered a, a masculine mode. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that I really like the way it conveyed, I guess, there's a moment in the film where um, it's her and Enes Césaire and then this um, this third man. I thought he was supposed to be André Breton. I wasn't sure because obviously the film doesn't name this person. He's like a white man, maybe like Latin roots. but And so it becomes a sort of weird triangulation where you can sense that she's 
there is sort of a desire um, kind of pulsing between the three of them and like the way that the film just kind of has them kind of standing in relation to each other and sort of silently dancing and, and communing in this sort of physical but unspoken way was, a, I don't know, a way of, I don't know, just conveying her potentially just, I don't know, falling in love. I call that scene ooh-la-la land. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like really beautiful and sensual without, um, you know, necessarily being like, ah, this is her falling for X figure and, and turning away from, you know, her old love. Um, so I thought that was interesting yeah. yeah i'm i'm really excited to see where that film goes uh, from rotterdam and what sort of circulation it has it definitely has like an art film vibe to it and you know before we talk about other films i am actually curious to know maybe from jordan as someone who's been to this festival a lot actually a lot of the films i saw had that um kind of quality to them where they seemed somewhat in between theatrical features and something that I could really see in a museum or a gallery setting as well. Um, is that sort of characteristic of Rotterdam's lineup or is that something that you tend to find a lot there? Yeah, I'd say it's not a uh, ra- not that rare of a thing. It's, it's something that they, I think, try and champion a little bit. Um, I don't know, I guess it's worth mentioning that in the last four years or over the last four years, there's been a new director of the festival and she's changed the kind of makeup of it a little bit um maybe less toward like traditional experimental cinema which had the festival has less of nowadays and more maybe in the vein of like more adventurous uh narrative quote-unquote features such as this one and a couple maybe what we're going to talk about um because this was in the like the main competition tiger competition for like younger filmmakers um and it's a quite a more diverse uh like formally and stylistically diverse like lineup than it used to be under the uh, previous regime. So you have like essay films and documentaries in addition to kind of these like hybrid objects. Uh, so yeah, for me, the competition is more interesting than it used to be. Um, but also, also this film was like the first example of the jury not awarding kind of the more <laughs> adventurous films, at least this year. Like, I don't think most of the movies we're going to talk about were not uh, singled out by the jury actually. Well, I guess this is a loser's podcast. Yes. Proudly so. (laughs) Um, Another movie, this one I didn't catch, but I've been hearing good things about is, is it Dream Team that I think you both enjoyed? I got to say the synopsis, I want to see it. (laughs) (laughs) What is it, like two hot detectives? When the synopsis describes its own protagonists as hot, you know, I meant Yes. Uh, but yeah, uh, do you do either of you want to talk a little bit about Dream Team? Sure, I'll do it. Um, yeah, Dream Team is the third feature by Lev Kalman and Whitney Horn, uh, a directing duo. The uh, previous features were Elf for Leisure. That's probably their most known film. It came out about a decade ago. And um, they made another film called Two Planes and a Fancy. And like those films, this is kind of like a genre pastiche Um very heavy on style. They're often con- called satires, but I don't think they would probably classify their films that way. But they, uh, this film is a homage to nineties, basic cable, uh, thrillers, erotic thrillers. <laughs> um, and it is kind of in the shape or structure of a TV show. There are seven episodes in it. Uh, 
and each one has its own credit sequence. So it's kind of like, I don't know, approximates the feeling of watching TV, you know, Netflix or something. And it just keeps playing and playing. Um, but yeah, it follows two hot Interpol agents, uh, Esther Gorel and uh, Alex Hungte from uh, the band Dirty Beaches. Um, they are on an international, uh, a trail of an international conspiracy involving psychic coral uh, that has slowly killing, I don't know, scientists and government officials, uh, largely in Mexico. So they travel to Mexico. So it's set mostly uh, on the West Coast in Southern California. And um, which is where at least one of the directors is from. So, um, yeah, it's a very odd movie. There's uh, like there's an invisible character in it. There is a uh, there's is like, this like a bite sized La Flor? <laughs> you could think of it that way. Yes. But it is in the sense that like, well, I guess unlike La Flor, the the story continues from through each episode. So it's not like distinct. But it uh, so it follows the same people, but new people are introduced each episode or each part. Um, but yeah, it's sort of hard to synopsize in the sense that like it's sort of it's environmentally themed, climate themed. But uh, like a lot of their films, it's very just like kind of absurdist uh, comedy. With they talk in very like stilted manner, and uh, everyone is extremely attractive. And um, yeah, a very vibes first film which they really set the template for. Like I rewatched their films before the festival because I interviewed them while I was in Rotterdam. And like Elf for Leisure is seriously like a time capsule of 2013. Like it's perfect like example of like the chill wave era of music is like, this is like the film version of that. And uh, I think it's like a super influential film. I think that they're, uh, I think it's been slowly kind of trying to outlive that, the, the kind of, uh, reputation of that film but i think this film actually will uh the new film will hopefully uh i don't know continue their uh their, this project yeah i enjoyed it I, I must say like it's not that long it's like under 90 minutes um but it's it's so busy there's just so many ideas so many just like sexy postures and like interesting clothes and cool effects um that i remember sort of 20 minutes into the film i was like oh it's been an hour I didn't like realize I didn't read anything about the film from the beginning. So I didn't realize the um, like 10 minute sort of episodic structure. Um, but within 20 minutes, I thought it was so much longer. And I and I did kind of feel a little overwhelmed as it went on. Um, I, I still enjoyed the experience, but it was just like so much is is going on. Um, it's it's interesting. I didn't know that about it being modeled after 90s basic cable, which is so apparent. Um, I sort of saw it as a surreal spy thriller um and i guess still sort of is um so the interval connection um but it's it's like yeah it's a spy thriller but like stripped of you know the various advanced technologies and like slick look of that genre and like taken into this sort of west coasty like bohemian beachy vibe um and like with cartoonish imagery and all that um but it kind of reminded me of like um if you guys are familiar with the Jean Le Carré and like those books about how, you know, spies are actually really, really boring and like don't really do much. Like, you know, there's a way of spectacularizing what they do, but like he's sort of interested in sort of the loneliness of it and like the banality of, of, you know, interactions. And I kind of thought of that a little bit um, just because we don't see much of, 
you know, the action with regard to like this choral mystery. And like, even when they are kind of solving the crime, it's, it's kind of absurdist. And, and, um, you know, I feel like the sort of animating force of it is just the sexiness and uh, these sorts of vague attractions that are unfolding between these characters. Yeah, there's lots of, of innuendo. Yeah. Lots of uh, tension between the main characters, even though there's no, they're not, that they're never hooking up or anything, but there's kind of like always vague, like suggestive dialogue. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like any, everyone could be hooking up maybe, and maybe somehow that's yeah. part of the crime. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but no, it's, it's shot on 16 millimeter. Whitney does the, she shoots the films and they have this super distinct look to them. I mean, this is a lot of like neon colors. Lots of the, the coral emit like this neon smoke. And so it's very like atmospheric. Um, and yeah, their films sometimes risk, I think, like over the style overshadows, like the substance in a sense, but there, it is there for people who are interested in digging deep or, and then they also work just as like pure, like vibe cinema, I guess. Well, maybe steering away from vibe cinema to whatever the opposite of that is, uh, Mario by Billy Woodbury, uh, is another kind of notable film that, uh, premiered at, this year's Rotterdam, Billy Woodbury is sort of a major figure of the L.A. Rebellion uh, movement. And this film is about Mario Pinto de Andrade, uh, the Angolan revolutionary and also the partner of uh, filmmaker Sarah Malderor. Jordan, I know you saw this Um What did you think of it? And uh, do you agree with my description of (laughs) the opposite of a vibes-based movie? (laughs) It is the opposite of a vibes movie, but... um, It is a substance movie. Exactly. It is a very substance movie. It's a very information-based film. So kind of unlike uh, The Ballad of Suzanne Cesar in the sense that this is a fairly straightforward documentary. Um, Lots of archival footage and it is not breaking the mold, but it's like telling his life story. It's a biographical documentary and Billy Woodbury, obviously very invested in Mario as a figure and a thinker and a important figure in African history. And, um, so, and Billy Woodbury doesn't make many, very many movies anymore. I mean, he's hasn't made very many ever, but it's been like, I think just a couple in the last couple decades, his most notable film or known film, I guess is bless their little hearts from the eighties. And he still teaches and stuff, but, uh, for whatever reason has never had like a, ongoing narrative filmmaking career. So um, when he does make something, it's like sort of an event. Um, And yeah, this was another film, like I don't know, didn't know much about the person. So I, it was all essentially new information for me. And you get to see a lot of important other, he crosses, Mario crosses figures with a ton of other luminaries in the arts and like political spheres over the decades, which, so you get to see some interesting footage of people and stuff like that. But yeah, I did enjoy it. Um, But yeah, again, less for a, like as a work of like formal or stylistic cinema than just like, you know, information, new learning things about, about this man, which is a a worthwhile project in its own right, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I usually feel very adversely toward information packed, like traditional documentaries, but there is something kind of very graceful about this one too. Uh, Especially I think Mario Andrade's voiceover that, um, is kind of woven into many parts of the film. I found I found it pretty magical to see, you know, 
early kind of like, for example, newsreel footage from Angola with Andrade talking about his upbringing and, um, you know, in the beginning of the film, he's talking about how he was part of this lumpen, the lumpen aristocracy of Angola, the the class that was actually sort of complicit with colonial administration and describing his process of awakening to a revolutionary ethos. And so there is this balance of really something very personal and then kind of impersonal in in the way the footage plays out um, that I found very touching. And the sweep is impressive, the sweep of the documentary and the number of figures uh, within the Angolan movement and and more broadly uh, the Pan-African movement that the film touches upon. And I guess I was, you know, it's it's just moving to kind of hear these figures and a figure like Andrade reflect upon his life and this whole trajectory of his life and how it played out against the trajectory of African and Caribbean you know, nationalist movements, because there is this question in the film of how do you grapple with the transition from um, being a colonized state to an independent nation with its own problems of nationalism? I mean, this is obviously a a big topic in post-colonialism, the unfulfilled radical promises of anti-colonial movements that the film sort of... uh, I feel like grapples with and in a really kind of moving way. And um, it reminded me of this show that my friend Sunil Sansgiri has on at the Brooklyn Museum right now called Two Refusals, which is also about Angola and Mozambique. Um, and really, again, looking back from now and talking to freedom fighters, not they're much less known uh, in in Sunil's work. They're not like at the level of uh, of renowned as Andrade, but really people who went through a lot and gave up a lot and them looking back and wondering if it was worth it and how do you kind of keep up hope uh, and optimism in in this sort of struggle that's really very, very long and doesn't always have a clear end in sight. So I found it really powerful in how it accumulated that kind of narrative. Yeah, I can imagine a much, much less interesting like narrative film being made out of like a biographical narrative film about him. So in that sense, I think the, the archival work that was done on this, so clearly it was a, in some sense of feat of collating all this material, which, you know, I don't know how rare some of this stuff is, but it doesn't seem like it's super like in circulation with just like normal, like, you know, historical records. So it, it, I think he's done a lot of research and, and things like that. So I think it is like an important, like, work of curation and just, uh, yeah, bringing an important figure to life. Um, Another film that uses archival material in a very interesting way uh, was a short film called Few Can See, I believe. Um, Beatrice, I know you liked it. You want to talk about it? Yeah, no. um, So it's, if you can see, it's by this director, Frank Sweeney. Um, and it was one of the winners of the Tiger Shorts competition. Ugh. I think there were four. I take back. There are three others. This is not a losers only podcast. There are some winners here too. <laughs> yeah. oh, true, right. Short winners. <laughs> um, in the 1980s with political conflict raging between Northern Ireland and UK. Uh, the conceit is that 
broadcasting was uh, partial to uh, one side of the conversation and that there aren't very many sort of Irish testimonies to the conflict at the time. And so this hybrid documentary is relies on reenactments um, with like a crew of actors and they kind of stage themselves as um, sort of interview subjects within a cable broadcast, um, kind of speaking for um, Irish voices at the time. And it's, it, it kind of unfolds in a very, um, as if this is just like an archival document. It's like 40 minutes and it's plays it like extremely just straight as if this is just like stripped out of, or like ripped out of the 1980s. Um, but you know, ultimately is just, you know, an act, um, sort of reinstating, you know, the voice that should have been there in the first place. And so I, I thought it was an interesting conceit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it really took me a while to like figure out that it wasn't just all archival. Oh, it took me till the end. <laughs> well, I started to get a sense because I just felt like, so there's this TV presenter character, right, who's weaving throughout the film and has mm -hmm. and interviews Irish figures who are like sometimes leaders of groups for example about this broadcasting ban uh, which basically bans TV and radio from broadcasting anything that might be considered about or, or promoting the IRA which is interpreted in a in a really you know indiscriminate sense obviously and what kind of clued me in was that this presenter just, after a while I was like, this is kind of campy. This is not like a real presenter from the it 80s. It was super campy. It was like, <laughs> that was my perception of like the, the time though, because sometimes I do yeah. look back at sort of archival broadcasts and I'm just like, oh, these people right. are ridiculous. Like people from the, you know, from the past just like have this sort of manner of speaking that is alien to a contemporary viewer. But in this case, you're, you're right to have noticed the heightened yeah, um, but also there is like so much real archival material too, right? There's all these stills and videos um, and clippings from like old newspapers. I It's hard for me to tell exactly like where the reenactment and sort of fabrication uh, ends and where, you know, the real materials and real histories are woven in. And so I found that really, yeah, really... Um, beguiling I guess um you know just not being able mm. to tell that line throughout the film yeah uh, definitely an uncanny feeling especially at the end when like the sort of ruse is revealed just like hmm okay truth fiction which is like kind of a banal conclusion and yet it's actually kind of was very effective in conveying that <laughs> yeah and it's also like such an energetic film which I really enjoyed I mean there is uh it there is a hint of camp to it um there is kind of just this playfulness maybe or cheekiness to it. Um, and it, I don't know, there's something very punk about it, no? Even the way in which the archival footage between the talking head or the interview scenes are cut, it's almost like it reminded me of like an 80s or 90s, you know, those punk videos which would start with like all these fake headlines or something. Um, just, it has a real energy to it that I liked. And, you know, there's a lot, it really spoke to the moment for me, you know, because all the, the conversations that this news presenter has are with people who are, um, you know, talking about how, for example, there's there's this group that's like parents against drugs or something and how they're not able to get any media coverage because there's a kind of rumor or belief that their group is a front for 
you know, some IRA activities or something. And so it felt very timely how it kind of talked about censorship and how censorship becomes self-censorship, right? Like institutions start to censor themselves uh, to not want to get in trouble and how there is so much fear mongering, especially, uh, you know, under the name of like terrorism, right? Because that's what happens in the film. Like anything that is remotely considered related to the IRA is ba- is kind of named as terrorist and so even these parents who just don't want like their kids to die of AIDS and drug abuse are not able to like really get a platform so yeah I thought it was kind of exciting and and sort of made me I don't know made me angry in a good way I know that there's another movie that you both saw and liked I think it's called Under a Blue Sun do you guys want to talk about that sure uh Under a Blue Sun is a film uh by a filmmaker named Daniel Mann, who is Israeli filmmaker, but he lives in London. Um, and this film uses uh, the movie Rambo three from 1988 as like a uh, jumping off point to uh, explore uh, the way the media uses images for propaganda purposes. Um, so it's using uh, Jordan, you could have, this would have, made such a perfect transition from what we were just talking about. You could have helped me out there. <laughs> it didn't occur to me that this is what we were talking about next. <laughs> um, anyway, it um, Rainbow 3 was, is set in Afghanistan um, and it follows uh, Stallone to... He, he helps uh, fight the, the Russians in Afghanistan. But um, yeah. the film was actually... He helps the freedom fighters. Yes. <laughs> the film was actually shot in the Israeli <laughs> desert, in the Negev desert. Um, so the uh, Under a Blue Sun kind of explores the way that uh, Rambo kind of hid these uh, aspects of the film, the kind of uh, the co- Israeli context behind the film, because the production actually... Uh, collaborated with the IDF uh, on certain sequences. There's in, uh, in, in Rainbow three, there's war sequences that use like fighter jet footage that they like allowed them to shoot of like planes flying over the desert and things like that. And um, the title refers to like a tinting. They, they tinted the image slightly blue to like disguise the Israeli, the look of the Israeli desert. So I guess people wouldn't know it's very distinct looking apparently. Um, so yeah, it's an essay film. And wow, it's humorous okay. and quite, it's actually quite fun in some respects because you see a lot of footage of behind the scenes footage of Rambo three and Stallone, you know, getting makeup done and talking about working out there. Um, but it also, it eventually moves more into like uh, the filmmaker going and shooting some of the similar, same locations, contemporary in present day, and also interviewing some like Palestinian locals who worked on the film Um and one in particular who like worked in the art department who still has all this like uh, uh, props and memorabilia and stuff from the film. So it's like his claim to fame. So he's kind of like the one, the figure who recurs quite often. Um, but it kind of accidentally turns into like a timely reflection on, you know, this particular area and contested area. Um, and also, yeah, in just the way that like images always have multiple meanings, I guess. I, I'm sorry. I had no idea that, Rambo 3 was like made in collaboration <laughs> with the IDF like yeah that's so just that's random oh um, I guess I should say too like there's a thread of the filmmaker is is reading letters that he sent to Sylvester Stallone which were unanswered letters but he's like I don't know 
they're just like kind of these reflective like they're a little accusatory i would say accusatory yeah (laughs) they're like accusatory they're kind of just like ah how is it that you did not notice yeah exactly i own up to Yeah, clearly he's not going to respond but it's sort of of like a prompt like you know trying to get him to like reflect on like what the implications of this shoot might have been yeah you you point out the the sort of humorous aspect to it and yeah it, it is funny um i think in giving and with the contemporary footage and like him talking to those Palestinian locals and this props guy. Um, yeah. Like the, the silliness of, of American militarism and war movies as vehicles of propaganda and just like the whole prospect of Rambo at this like macho figure, like the silliness of all that is really accentuated by just giving uh, the locals, uh, I guess the mic and, you know, taking this behind the scenes perspective of the people that worked on the film um, and who like kind of comment on just like the fact that, Oh, like Stallone didn't do half of these stunts. He's there's like four different guys that look like Rambo, like walking around and we have to like account for them. And, you know, it's all the sort of ridiculous um, effects and, and um, stuff that like kind of took place at the time to orchestrate this like vision of Stallonean heroism, uh, was quite funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I, oh, and then there's also, and I, I guess you didn't mention that, um, there's a sort of a transposition of, um, of like images, uh, like you see images from the movie sort of over kind of contemporary or just like archival footage of like the place itself that kind of also plays with this blurring of, of reality and, um, you know, cinematic perspective. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was really strong the way it like sort of orchestrated all these elements, but I, I did kind of feel that the way it devolved into um, its sociopolitical commentary felt a little uh, dutiful to me. Um, n- you know, not because that's, uh, you know, I, I don't desire that, but because I felt, I don't know, it, it felt um, it felt a little pat. It just felt like it didn't really add much um, especially it, you know, after kind of teasing out these more spectacular, um, aspects of the film and, and just like the bizarre nature of, you know, how this film came together and then like the politics, it's sort of, I don't know, it kind of wrapped up in a sort of pat way in, in my opinion, but, but yeah, definitely an intriguing concept and, and really beautiful in some moments. Cool. I'll I'll definitely check that one out. That sounds very interesting. Um, Do we want to close out with some favorites? Uh, Anything you saw that you really liked that we didn't cover? Um, I can go first. Or actually, I won't go first. Um, Jordan, why don't you go first? Um, Some, a couple others that I liked that I mentioned in my forthcoming report for Film Comment. Uh, There's a movie, there's a movie called Grey Bees I quite liked from Ukraine which is uh, in some ways like a standard art art cinema war film, but um, it deals with uh, two elderly neighbors living in Donbass, like in the gray zone between Russia and Ukraine. And so they're like the last inhabitants of this village, an old mining village. And um, they are total opposites. One is Russian, one is Ukraine. They have different political views. They bicker about everything food and just like 
their day-to-day lives and whatnot. So, but they rely on each other for everything since it's the last two people. So they're, they're friends, but they just have like their differing views. And so the, the movie's very like simple. It's them just kind of like going to each other's houses every day. Bombs are kind of going off in the background and um, it's shot in a very, you know, static camera, very dour looking. Um, but um, occasionally they're visited by uh, soldiers from either either side. Um, and nothing really like transpires like violently or anything, but you, you kind of just get to further realize like the complexities of the differing ideologies when in fact they're also like keeping each other sane or supporting each other in a time that's obviously difficult for for everyone so it is uh yeah it's an interesting movie and um yeah i just i formally is very accomplished and i found it quite interesting so that was one that i liked as well um and another one i guess swimming home i enjoyed which has some fairly known actors in it christopher abbott uh, is one of the main characters as is, um, Mackenzie Davis who plays his wife, but, um, it kind of deals with their family going to like a summer house. Um, and when they arrive, there's a naked woman in their pool played by Arian Labed, who the, uh, Greek actress from, uh, you know, Dogtooth and many other, uh, Attenberg and things like this. Um, so yeah, it's kind of one of those like uh, outsider figures infiltrating a family films, and she slowly the Arian Labed character slowly like seduces everyone in the family, and she her motivations are quite unclear. Um, and yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like Tehran. Yes, yeah, very Tehran esque <laughs> setup to it. Um, and um, yeah, it, it it gets less for me a little less interesting as it goes along, it's based on a book. And I think that's kind of like the arc of the book it's following because it turns into like, it does only, it's not going to end well, you know, that kind of going in. So it becomes less interesting once you kind of find this, find out the mystery and the secrets behind the, the motivations behind what, what's happening. So it gets kind of like a little violent and uh, like body horror ish even at times, but uh, the setup's really interesting and it's well shot and it's uh, got a, a great like electronic, like atonal score to it, which I enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I think that's a movie that will probably travel around and be fairly popular. Um, yeah, cause it's quite entertaining. Beatrice. I was really impressed by this movie's a spoiling rain by, um, a Japanese director, Haruhiko Arai. Um, so hmm, how to describe the plot? Um, so it begins with, uh, this movie, director of, of pink films uh, and also porn films. He is attending the funeral of this woman who um, we find out that he lived with, he had a thing with, and then she kind of died in a sort of murder-suicide with another lover. And so he's really depressed. And he meets up with this other guy who is also kind of spiraling for a reason that would count as a spo- spoiler, honestly. And, you know, so it's on the one hand, like a miserable guys drinking together all night movie um, and in the sort of minimalistic vein of like a Hong Sang Soo, they're just talking to each other. Um, But it's a bit more pitched toward melodrama because as they're speaking and like drinking a lot, (laughs) 
Uh, it kind of goes to flashbacks of uh, their relationships with these women. Um, but there's a sort of meta element because they're both in the pink film industry, the sort of, you know, the dying. Do I need to explain pink films? They're sort of just like a, a racy kind of Japanese film. They're kind of in decline and in contemporary Japan. Um, and these women that they're kind of mourning over are actresses in the films. Um, and so this sort of male agonizing uh, is interwoven with uh, quite like involved and, and graphic sex scenes um, that, you know, I, I think were actually like really lovely and affecting and also revealed something about the emotional contours of these characters. Um, yeah. And it was just, you know, and so this whole drama unfolds and there's sort of a mystery at the, at the heart of it um, in terms of the connection between all of these characters and um, sort of artistic aspirations and, and how sex kind of feeds into that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just like a completely absorbing film for, for various reasons, but <laughs> yeah. So a spoiling rain, I, don't know what will happen to it because I can't imagine it getting, uh, you know, a very popular kind of distribution, but it is that sort of entertainment, that sort of, um, you know, pleasurable, like drama. Lovely. I'll close out with a short that I caught called To Exist Under Permanent Suspicion um, by this French director, Valentin Nuagem. It's just about 15 minutes and it stars uh, Kaije Kagame, the actress from Saint-Omer who played the, the novelist uh, scholar figure in Saint-Omer. And it's, yeah, it's a very, in some ways, simple film, but I felt very taken with it. Um, so the protagonist works at some sort of real estate office in the neighborhood La Défense in Paris, which to my understanding is sort of the business district in Paris, like um, New York's Wall Street uh, type of situation. Beatrice, you being in Paris maybe uh, at, at the moment can confirm. <laughs> and she works in this high rise and pitches this idea of this kind of residential and commercial skyscraper to these um suited men whose we only see their backs we never see their faces she's actually the only kind of emotive character in the whole film and so it starts out with her yeah going to the office and making this pitch but then reality starts to kind of like fracture and um there's this moment where she ingests like a blueprint kind of drawing of this building and seemingly starts to entertain these kind of destructive fantasies about uh, the building, but also about the architecture and kind of the skyscape and landscape of this particular neighborhood. And the whole film has this extremely post-apocalyptic vibe, which is just on the like line between is this just how it feels to be in this kind of concrete jungle type business district or is this really exaggerated? You know, it's like, it's not necessarily dystopian. Uh, it just plays on the existing elements of living in these tall gray buildings surrounded by like glass and metal. And I don't know, it just, it, 
it captures a kind of this kind of like simmering rage and alienation that I think a lot of us feel while living in cities and while feeling really kind of squeezed in by our surroundings um, in in a really imaginative and also creepy way. Uh, in the press notes, the director says that he sort of had Brian De Palma in mind for the aesthetic and mood of the film. And I very much felt that. It's like there's something kind of schlocky, uh, you know, pulpy to it. And that's why you're on edge. You feel like something kind of bad is going to happen. And it does, but not in the ways that you expect. It just goes in these strange animated and uh, sort of, I guess you can call it science fictional directions. Uh, but yeah, just a very small film, but one that I think is very striking and I hope um, circulates more. So on that note, thank you so much, Beatrice and Jordan, for joining me and surveying some of the highlights from this year's Rotterdam Festival for listeners who want more. Uh, Jordan's write-up on the festival will be in the film comment letter on Friday, so keep an eye out for that. And yeah, thank you both. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 